Time for a monthly visit. Dr. Bernice Shafarik from Shafarik Dental in Columbia joins us today with a program about Children's Dental Health Month, which is February. Dr. Shafarik, good morning. Thanks for joining us for today. And by the way, is the office open today? Well, I'm here, but we're not really because um, the roads are not great. And I heard them say everybody should say, stay home who doesn't have to come in. Apparently you have to come in? Well, uh, I just came in to make sure everything was under control. And she picked up the phone and called me. So here we go with our program today. Before we get to the children's dental health portion of it, you have an update on what's going on with the vaccine? Yeah, I like to do that because there's a lot of um, misinformation, I think, out there. And um, I'd like to address that a little bit. Also, I was able, so normally Sunday afternoon, I'm busily preparing for my radio show, but you know what I was doing yesterday? I think there was a basketball game in Chicago that was taking your attention. No, actually, I was at um, the Yukon School of Pharmacy completing my training to be able to give vaccinations. Well, I thought you already knew how to do that. Well, uh, we don't give intramuscular, plus it's there's a lot of details. I don't give vaccinations. And um, actually, it's interesting that you say that because I, when I went for the training, so first you do a, a course and pass a test and get a certificate, and then you can sign up to do the hands-on portion. So they want to watch you before you actually go into the field and do that. And there were, in my group, there were two dentists and an EMT. And the uh, instructor actually said, you know, I know dentists. We've had a lot of dentists coming through, and there's a couple of things we do differently because we don't give intramuscular injections. So we have to worry about some things that are not as much of an issue when you're giving into a muscle. Now, just to clarify what you mean by that, that when you get a shot in the arm, that's intramuscular, and when you get like a lidocaine, a.k.a. Novocaine, so you have learned, Novocaine shot in your mouth, that's not intramuscular. Well, you can go through muscles, but we are in the head and neck. So we're a lot closer to a lot of vital blood vessels. So it's, you know, there's, there are different techniques. So, for example, when we're doing an injection, we have epinephrine in our solutions that we're giving also. So we don't really want to inject that into a blood vessel because it will narrow your blood vessels and make your heart race. And I think there are people out there who've had that experience. So we have to what you call aspirate, which means that when we go to do the injection, we pull back to make sure that we're not in a blood vessel. And let's say you were in a blood vessel, then you would just pull the needle out a little bit and re-inject in a different site, check again, and if you're not in a, in a blood vessel, you can go ahead and inject. When you're doing, so the intramuscular injections that they're recommending for the vaccine are in the upper arm. If, you know, there are circumstances where you'd want to do it in the thigh, if it's a child or a very small person, but basically the anatomy of that area is a lot more forgiving. You're not going to be injecting into a major blood vessel. Plus, there's no epinephrine. It's a vaccine. So there's differences. But, um, you know, we are used to aspirating. But we don't want to do that when we're doing a vaccine because that's more painful and unnecessary. Since you brought this up, Bernice, is there a size difference in the needles between the type that you'd get in the dentist chair versus the one you get in the arm when you get the COVID vaccine? Yeah, well, the size of the needle depends on where you want the medication to go. And so the vaccines, in a way, are kind of no-brainer from our point of view because you inject to the hub, you know, the hub of the needle. It's That's what you do. Whereas for us, it all depends on the anatomy of the patient that you're seeing. So we have a couple of different size needles that we use, um, but it basically, we're much more attuned to the anatomy in the mouth and the variations there, and there's a lot more than there is in the upper arm. 
So February is Children's Dental Health Month, which I think you want kids to have good dental health all year long, but I guess this is a way to bring attention to good dental habits? Um, yes, yes. So um, it's always good to return to, but I, I just wanted to say one more thing about the vaccination, and that is that I've been hearing from a lot of people, one comment is that they want to wait until for some reason they think it's safer and I just want to remind people that 29 million people have gotten the vaccination with no deaths, and 20 million people in the United States have contracted COVID with 440,000 deaths. So the math shows that it's better to get the vaccine, but once you get the vaccine, you still can't let your guard down. And I get that question a lot. People think, well, now that I'm immune, I don't have to wear a mask, I can go to Mexico, I can change my lifestyle. You really can't do that until 70 or 80 percent of the population is protected. That will make the virus not as prevalent as it is right now. So I just wanted to remind people about that. Well, I might add, too, that even though you're promoting the vaccine, which I get that, I would promote it, too. A lot of people listening right now want to get it and they can't. Can you say anything to make them feel better about getting it down the road? Be persistent. That's what I have to say, because um, you just have to keep going on those websites. I've been really glad to hear, for example, Lebanon. I live in Lebanon, and I was speaking to the director of the senior center, and she's been contacting a lot of her seniors and helping them. I had one senior who is um, in her 80s, and she had to stay on hold for three and a half or four hours in order to get her appointment. But she did that. She sat on the phone for three or four hours, and finally it went through. So that's my biggest piece of advice is to be persistent. And we've heard those stories, which are true of, you know, there's that problem of all of a sudden you have vaccine, but you don't have people appointed. So I've heard that the different public health departments are trying to have an on-call list so if for whatever reason people don't show up, that they can have a second pool of candidates waiting. So that's coming. I also think, you know, what I did, now I'm a volunteer. So within a few days, I'll have a certificate. So if there's an event at, say, a senior center or community senator center, I can go there and help give the vaccine. So that's not um, a factor. But you're right, it is frustrating. I know a lot of people who have not had an easy time, so that's my only advice. Be persistent, just keep trying. Let's go from the folks who so far have been able to get it, the 75 up, to Children's Dental Health Month. What's it all about? So there are some things that are still big problems with children, and there are some things that are actually pretty exciting that's starting to change in our thought process about children. So the one that people are probably most familiar with is decay. And decay is still a very big problem, unfortunately, around the world. And the reason why I say unfortunately is because it is a preventable disease, but I can tell you from the experience of my children and adult patients there's definitely a segment of the population that is more vulnerable to decay. And that's frustrating because, you know, as the parent, you're thinking, you know, I'm doing everything I can. You know, I'm, there's fluoride in the water. There's, you know, fluoridated toothpaste. I have them brush. I don't feed them sweets. And then people still end up sometimes with decay. Well, the good news is we can fix that. And I think what we're learning through this whole pandemic is where there are microorganisms, viruses, bacteria, fungi, other microorganisms, you can get disease. So the mouth is definitely an area where we have bacteria that can cause decay. So really important to still work hard at those preventive means to, to um, try to decrease your risk. And when the kids brush their teeth, Bernice, how long should they brush their teeth? Well, you know, they say two minutes. And what takes two minutes, Bernice? 
Well, you know, we used to say happy birthday twice, but now... That's where I was going with that. And I really think that the ideal is there are some kids' electric toothbrushes that actually will do a timer for the two minutes, and that's probably the ideal way to go because that's definitely supported by research. The more time you spend, and, you know, with hand-washing, we've realized that too. You know, I think that to wash your hands for 20 seconds is different from what a lot of people were doing before we ended up realizing that that's not enough when you have a pandemic. Is decay still a big problem for kids? Yes, it is. And what is um, a little depressing is we still have discussions where we realize kids are being exposed to things like energy drinks and soda. And that's one of the worst things that you can do for teeth. You know, no matter how wonderful your oral hygiene is, if you're coating your teeth in acid, then you're going to overwhelm the system. And what's important, I think, for parents to remember, you know, and, and it's hard to have complete control, but grandparents out there also do not be giving the, the children soda because once you have a tooth that has had decay and needs a filling, that tooth is going to need treatment for the rest of that child's life. You know, nothing lasts as well as natural enamel and the natural um, dentin and pulp and everything that's underneath there. A natural tooth can fight the elements way better than any restorative material. So another thing that happens with adults, people will walk in and say, well, shouldn't I just get implants as if that's going to be better than the natural system? And that's so not true. Your natural tooth structure can adjust to all of the elements way better than any any restorative materials that we have to fix it. I would bet that there are parents listening now who say it's going to be difficult to restrict or eliminate soft drinks, sodas from a kid's diet. So if you were to give the kids that, what would be your recommendation? Would it be after they've finished the drink, swish your mouth out with water? Yeah, well, there's no nutritional value in soda. And if you have this budding child who has to grow into an adult and have a healthy body for the rest of their lives. Well, there's no nutritional value in a Twinkie, but people eat Twinkies. I don't know if they still make Twinkies. I'm just making up some kind of junk food. So, yes, you're right. Swishing with water is better. Um, you know, and for me, kids, we should be able to have more control because most kids don't walk into the store and buy the soda. It's usually an adult who buys that soda for them. So the advice is the parents don't buy it. My advice is, yeah, don't buy it, because once you become an adult, then you can make your own decisions. But kids, you know, we all need to protect children because, you know, they don't have the wherewithal to make those decisions. You know, they'll taste it, and it tastes bubbly, and maybe it tastes sweet, and they think, wow, this is great. They don't know what we know. So with my adults, you know, sometimes there's situations like people are working you know, it's so difficult. Some people work like second shift, then they work first shift, then they work third shift, and so they've thrown their sleep cycles off completely. So they depend on something like energy drinks to keep themselves awake. So that person, you know, if they drink through a straw, that's better. But I just really think that we should be able to discipline ourselves to control the intake of what our kids get. And if you don't buy it, then they can't drink it. I'm just proud of myself for working the word Twinkie into the discussion this morning. That might be the first time I've ever used that word on this radio station 50-plus years. So what other oral hygiene tips do you have for the youngsters, especially during Children's Dental Health Month? So what you brought up is very wise, Wayne, that the longer you brush, the better. So two minutes is great. Um, up until about age eight, kids really can't floss very well themselves, so you need to be helping them with that. And once they start out, those flossers the, that have like cute little dragons and things on the handle are helpful. Um, you know, anything that makes it a little bit more fun is good. Another great tip is, you know, start from day one, getting your baby used to the fact that 
you take a washcloth and rub their gums and clean them so they're used to you being in their mouth helping them keep things clean. And I would think also when it comes to instructing a youngster on how to properly brush, it's easy to do the teeth in the front, but don't you want to encourage them to work on the stuff in the back that's a little harder to get to? Right, and, you know, that me- brings me to how important dental visits are. Even, you know, the nowadays we want every child to have a dental home by the time they're one year old. And, you know, one year old, it's going to be a little hard to do a whole lot of dentistry in their mouth, but you start to talk about habits and what things are healthy and what's not healthy. And as they get a little bit older, I've heard my hygienist um, tell the kids, you know, take your tongue and run it along your back teeth. Can you feel all those bumps on your back teeth? Well, that's where the bugs get caught, and so you have to be scrubbing the backs of your, of uh, the tops of your back teeth. So, you know, or having them just watch in the mirror can be helpful. There are also, you know, even I think parents could do this themselves at home if they like. Um, there are disclosing solutions that you can buy that color the plaque like bright purple, and have the kids brush until that purple is gone. That sometimes they're better served doing that in the dental office because as a parent it might be a little more difficult for you to figure out how they're going to be able to get some of those areas clean. But it is an eye-opener to see how many surfaces people are missing if they're not brushing for long enough. What's the role of sealants when it comes to children's dental health? And maybe go back to square one. What exactly is a sealant and what does it do? So I put sealants in there because um, they're just a fantastic way to help keep a tooth healthy long term. So basically, we talked about the tops of the back teeth. There are grooves there. And in those grooves, bacteria can get caught. So Um, In around the 80s, we came up with the idea that since we know how to etch and bond to tooth structure, to enamel, we could etch and bond a thin layer and make it instead of really groovy, more flat and like a skating rink so that bacteria would not get caught. So that's a procedure that has wonderful research behind it. So basically... You just have to keep the area dry. You put some solutions on it. It gets hardened with a light. It's a pretty quick procedure. So what we wanted to do is to get all of the six-year molars sealed by the time the child is seven or eight, you know, when they're in their mouth, because that's the first back tooth that comes in. So it has to be in your mouth for another 95, 100 years. So it would be nice to protect that tooth. So that's usually where we start first, and then the 12-year molars. If you have a child who has a tendency to get a lot of decay, you can even seal some of the other teeth. Once a tooth has a filling, it's it's too late to do the sealant. And how long does the sealant last? If you put it on when a kid is that age, does it last the rest of their life? Do you have to re-put it? Should should I get a sealant on my teeth at my advanced age? Well, it depends on whether or not you already have fillings or crowns on them. Oh, I got fillings, I got crowns. Let's talk. So um, the answer to that question is physically when you examine the tooth structure, um, they may not last at all. There's so much variation involved in that because if you have a child who clenches and grinds more, then they may wear away the material. What the research has shown is that even if physically you look in there and you don't see sealant material, very often that tooth is still well protected against decay. And just, I'm going to throw out here, uh, when we in dentistry talk to people in the medical field and we compare our research to theirs, we have a problem that we don't have the numbers that they have in medicine because we don't have like dental hospitals where lots of people go to be treated and you have all of that data. So we rely more on sometimes insurance information, and that may not be totally accurate. Or we, we depend sometimes on other countries where there are more um, public health documentation, so they have school dentistry, so they can follow things more. So in those kind of studies, 
they've looked at kids who've gotten sealants and then compared them to ones who didn't get sealants and 20 years later who has more fillings. And it's always the kids who didn't get the sealants who have more fillings. So that would indicate that even if the material doesn't seem to be there deep in the grooves, that bonded little filling over the over the tooth structure seems to have protected those teeth. I don't recall when I was a kid being given any kind of a sealant. Do you feel now in 2021 that sealants are being underutilized? I do, but when you were a kid, Wayne, there was not etching and bonding and sealants. So we didn't have that. We didn't have cars back then either. Yeah, no, I think we did have cars, but things were a little bit different. But it is, um, so underutilization, you know, sometimes that's a consequence of our whole insurance and financial model. And that's a difficult situation because sometimes insurance companies will pay for fillings, but they won't pay for sealants. So that becomes, you know, a difficult dilemma for the parents because, you know, if you do four sealants and there's a certain, uh, you know, investment involved in that and the insurance doesn't help you at all, you know, there's a lot of variation among insurances. So I think if you're out there and, and you want to bring your kids to the dentist, it'd be a good idea to take a look at if you have a choice of policies, are sealants a covered procedure, and up to what age do they cover them? So when I mentioned 12-year molars, those are pretty vulnerable to decay because they're way back there. So we say we call them 12-year molars, but some kids don't get them until they're 14 or 15, so that you'd rather have a policy where there's a longer period where they would cover the sealants for you. Is it safe to assume that applying a sealant to a child or an adult is painless? It's the same as rubbing toothpaste on a tooth, or what? what's the procedure like? So the only potential for pain is um, we have to keep the tooth surface dry so that, um, let's say as an adult, I have some adults who say their teeth are incredibly sensitive to everything. That's why, you know, there's Sensodyne out there. People are using it because they have very sensitive teeth. So we do have to dry and blow air on the tooth but that's about the only potential. So most of the time um, with kids, they they would tell you, no, they didn't feel anything at all. It's just sort of annoying to have to stay open. And there is, just for the uh, adult part of the population, what we use to treat the tooth surface that's called etchant is actually delivered in this little syringe that has a very small tip on the end. So we're always very careful not to show that to the kids because if you're laying back it looks like a needle, and it's not. It's just a means to deliver a very small amount of solution. But if we're looking at what could be uncomfortable about it, we like to avoid having the kids take a look at that because it doesn't look nice. But for uh, most people, no, no pain at all unless you happen to have super sensitive teeth. And in kids, that seems to happen more in their front teeth than the back teeth. I would assume there are adults who have not had sealant on their teeth. Would you recommend a 50- or a 75-year-old adult getting sealant applied now, or has that ship already sailed? So that's what I love about my profession, that it's all very customized. So I have had the experience of having people come in who are in their 40s or 50s, and they've not had So they do have what we call virgin back teeth. So that person has the potential to get sealants. Now, that being said, are those people naturally pretty resistant to decay? Did they have the appropriate amount of fluoride? Are their teeth pretty resistant? Is it wise to have to use a sealant? Well, in my mind it is if you have someone who, for example, in their 40s or 50s um, has a lot of virgin back teeth, but they contract um, some sort of disease or like gastric reflux or they have something that will change the environment in their mouth and make them more prone to decay, that person would be a great candidate for sealants. In my practice, I've had patients who 
you know, they've changed their lifestyle. As I said, you know, maybe they're working in a job where they work different hours and they just, you know, have to. I mean, I in places like the military or my son's profession, if if you're on a boat and you're delivering a barge and you just can't get the sleep, then that would be a time when people have a tendency to use more of those energy drinks or things like that. So that person would be a good candidate. So definitely is um, specific. So I've had patients, for example, who got through childhood and now they're young adults and they never had a cavity, and all of a sudden like they had a cavity and a wisdom tooth. And it just really sort of overwhelmed them because they never had to go through that experience before. And as comfortable as you try to make it, for some people, they just don't like you literally in their face. You know, we're in people's mouths. We're making them stay open. It's not always a comfortable thing. Some of those people have come to me and said, is there anything, I, you know, I want to do everything I can to try to prevent getting decay. So those people are appropriate candidates for, for sealants. What do you see as attitudes you get from parents about Children's Dental Health Month? I'm sure in some cases the kids see what their parents do. If the parents behave with dental health, the kids might follow suit. And conversely, if they don't, that teaches the kids bad oral behavior. You know, it's um, it's definitely true that a lot of parents out there are are trying really hard to control their attitudes. But, you know, there's definitely a lot of anxiety around dentistry, and I don't see that changing in my practice. You know, I recently had a 33-year-old come in who basically has what I would call a bombed-out mouth, you know, tons of decay and and will lose teeth. And, you know, his explanation is partially that he has a fear of physicians and dentists. So that happened early in life. And I know because I've had those conversations with parents that they're trying really hard. They don't want to show their anxiety to their children. Well, you know, kids can just pick up on so much. So that's one thing you have to be aware of. But more importantly, you know, you've got to you know, walk the talk. You know, if you're telling your kids how important it is to take care of their teeth, but you're not coming in for dental visits, then they're not going to do it once they become 21. You know, they'll think, well, that's something you did as, as a child, and it's not really important. And we know that's not true. If you are seeing the dentist frequently, you have a much better chance of having your teeth for a lifetime. So that's one thing we need to be very aware of. The other thing is, are you flossing at home? You know, are they watching and seeing that you never floss, so why why should they floss? You know, the things that we tell our kids that we think are good for them, if we don't do it, then they'll realize that. If you say, well, you can't have soda, but you're drinking soda, that's a message that they'll pick up on also. You know, it's hard to be a parent, but definitely modeling behavior is really important. Do you have a program in place, or at least a recommendation or encouragement, of bringing in kids into the office at a young age, maybe even before they need dental care, just so they become comfortable in the dentist chair in the dentist office? Definitely, and so the American Academy of Pediatric Dentistry has made the recommendation that every child have a dental home by the time they're one year old. And that first visit may be more about sitting on mom's lap and discussing habits, you know, thumb-sucking pacifiers, and we'll, in a little while we'll get to an incredibly exciting area of children's dentistry now that we're looking at craniofacial growth and development. And those are things that if you intervene very early, you can make a huge difference in, in the child's life. So you're right. Yes, coming in early is important. And, you know, they just plain get get used to being seen. And even if it's not a lot of dental treatment, they're used to that. Just like we talked about, I mentioned putting um, the face cloth Brush, you know, brushing their gums before they even get teeth, so they're used to the fact that oral care 
is an important part of their life. Okay, Bernice, you're teasing me this morning. I want to hear more about craniofacial development. That sounds to me like brain and face, but that's about as far as I can go with that. Well, I'm going to just back up for one second because the other important thing I wanted to say, because I still do hear it out there, baby teeth have a huge role in the development of your permanent teeth. So just because they're baby teeth doesn't mean that you shouldn't be um, restoring them, fixing baby teeth. They are definitely, and that kind of goes into the growth and craniofacial development because what is really obvious to us as dentists is when you look into people's mouths, there's a lot of variation. And we've had shows about breathing and sleep apnea. And I recently um, listened, because everything for us is online now, to a course that the ADA has about this topic craniofacial growth and development. So craniofacial basically is your head and your face. When we look into people's mouths and they're an adult and they tell us they have sleep apnea, there's a few things you can tell. Sometimes they'll have ground their teeth down. Sometimes they'll have crowding. Most times they'll have not enough room for the tongue. So when you look back there, there's just not a lot of room for them to be able to breathe. Turns out a whole lot of that stuff could be prevented very early in a child's development if we paid attention to certain things. Okay, you want to move on to cranial facial development now? Well, that's so that's well, what that, we're talking well, about. Well, that was it, okay. Yeah, so... The new revolution. So in other words, we didn't do this back when I was your age. So just to throw out some shocking you didn't like, things you, that are... You missed that line. When when we when I was your age. age, no, I think when you were my age. Well, we're not all that far apart, Wayne. So I think that um, some of the things that we've looked at that we know are important now we're realizing more why they're important. So, for example, breastfeeding it makes a huge difference in a child's life, and it used to be that I think we mostly talked about you know, immune system and the healthy things that you could transfer through breast milk. But it turns out that in order for a child to breathe and swallow appropriately, breastfeeding is the easiest way to develop those areas. So craniofacial development, basically we're talking about how the bones grow. And bone holds the teeth in place. So maybe if we had the right stimulation and bones grew to where they should be, maybe people wouldn't get sleep apnea and maybe there would be no crooked teeth. That's what I mean by revolution. I see. At what point do children's teeth need to be fixed? And by that, I mean, is there any point at, repairing a baby tooth through a filling or I can't imagine a crown, but do you, do you let that go? Do baby teeth get infected? You just wait until they lose them and then the real teeth come in? No, no, no. You have to fix things. I even, actually, I didn't think you were going in that direction. So Neither did I when I started the question. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, definitely if you have baby teeth and they have decay, you have to do something about that. So sometimes if, let's say, a child is 11 and it's a baby tooth that's going to be coming out soon, sometimes you can elect to take that baby tooth out a little bit earlier, but you have to be careful about that because that saves the room for the, for the incoming permanent tooth. I was thinking even earlier than that. So basically what we're thinking about now is the roof of your mouth is the floor of the nose. If people are breathing through their noses and not through their mouths, a whole lot of health changes take place. It's so much healthier to breathe through your nose. If your roof of your mouth is very narrow, 
it will narrow the nasal cavity also and make it much harder for you to breathe. So those are things that we're looking at now, and that sometimes will mean intervening way earlier than we expect it to. So it used to be in the orthodontic world, and, you know, this is all revolutionary thought, and it makes us change our paradigms. You know, in the orthodontic world, very often it was wait until there's no more baby teeth. Well, now it turns out if you use the baby teeth and to, as the child's growing, to help that roof of their mouth be wider and flatter and allow for better nasal breathing, that might be a much wiser thing to do than wait until they already have the crowding and they haven't been able to breathe well through their nose and maybe they don't sleep well and all sorts of other other manifestations of problems are happening. So what is the role of the dentist in trying to convince people that nose breathing is healthier than mouth breathing? Are there things you as a dentist can do to make it easier to breathe through the nose? Well, you know, most parents really love their children and want them to have the best possible life. And if they come in with their one- or two-year-old and tell me that that child is snoring, most parents think that's not a healthy thing, and it's not. But some of the medical community, we haven't really caught up to how we can make changes because if that child is snoring, then it means they're not breathing through their nose at night, and they're not going to get the sleep that they should, and maybe they'll be more disruptive during the day because they really haven't had a good night's sleep. So the advantage we have in dentistry is of looking in people's mouths. And so we can look into a child's mouth and say, wow, you know, those are huge tonsils. That's not what I usually see. Or, you know, you have a very narrow roof of your mouth. Or once they get teeth, let's say even at age one or two, if there's crowding, there's not really going to be space for the permanent teeth when they come in. So their bone is not as wide as it should be. You mentioned huge tonsils. What do you do when you see a huge tonsil? Is that sign number one, they got to come out? Well, so I don't make a medical diagnosis. All I do is observe that, wow, you know, they seem to have very large tonsils. How well do they breathe through their nose? So if you see a child whose mouth is open most of the time, then they're probably not breathing through their nose. So somebody needs to intervene. And what we're looking at is that's going to take a whole community of people. We had a show, um, I think it was in 2019, where I brought in um, a woman who does myofunctional therapy. So it starts with breastfeeding. Breastfeeding's ideal. Sometimes breastfeeding is difficult. And I'm hearing in the pediatric world Sometimes people are doing surgical procedures to get rid of a tongue tie at a very early age, and people are reacting like, wow, isn't that too young? Well, no, if that's preventing this child from really being able to breastfeed, then it's uncomfortable for the mother. There's a whole series of, pro- of things that would be easier if we corrected that problem. Sometimes, well, often, When you have a child who has a situation where they've been breathing through their mouth for a long time, they need to be taught to breathe through their nose. So there are all sorts of different fields that could be involved. I think in dentistry, we have the opportunity to know what's normal and what's not and advise the parents about that and then together try and find some solutions for that. So, no, I'm not going to say you need to have your tonsils out. And what would be an early impediment to normal growth, and how would that have lifelong consequences? So, one is not being able to breathe through your nose. So, there's a lot of reasons why that can happen. 
Um, we talk about allergies and if the kids, if you know, it's it's interesting that if your nose is stuffed up, the best way to get rid of a stuffy nose is to breathe through your nose. But if you have a deviated septum or something, then it's hard to breathe through your nose. There are habits, you know, there are pacifiers that can be very destructive and create a situation where it's harder for a child to bring their tongue to the roof of their mouth. And that makes swallowing more difficult and nasal breathing more difficult because it narrows the size of that roof of the mouth, which is the floor of the nose. So all of these things work together. And one of the most important things I can do is just plain create an awareness that we should take a look at this and try to improve this child's life. Do you have youngsters who come into the office and they actually say, hey, that was cool. I want to come back. I mean, I realize that's unusual for people to say about a dentist office, but I got a feeling that you make an extra effort to try to make the kids feel comfortable. And after a while, that translates to the adult where they're not afraid to come to the dentist office. Well, we definitely do have the three generations now because I've been at it for long enough. I do have to say a lot of my efforts are with adults who are very nervous because, you know, they're the product of the child who didn't have a really comfortable visit. So I'm definitely not a pediatric dentist, which is interesting. When I first started practicing, people thought, oh, you're a woman, do you treat children? But I think that I've been able to help a whole lot of adults who are very anxious. And, you know, it's such a cycle. They're anxious and they're embarrassed about the way their teeth look, but they avoid coming in because it's so uncomfortable. And it's really hard to get yourself past that. And I think that some of my patients who come in just feel like they were judged for that along the way. And so I have to put a lot of effort into correcting that. So definitely we're very um, enthusiastic about trying to make the child's visit as comfortable as possible. Um, But I don't see a whole lot of kids. I just want to make sure they get the best um, situation possible and the best start in life. What's the role of sleep apnea when it comes to children's dental health, and is there a way to deal with that early on in their life? So maybe there is. That's what is being looked at right now, because if you look at people who are in their 50s or 60s who have sleep apnea, sometimes you look in their mouths and you realize that they have a narrow palate, there's not enough room for their tongue, They are not able to breathe well through their nose, so it begs the question, if someone had intervened and made that bone grow in a healthier manner, maybe they would never have ended up with the sleep apnea. Interesting thought, right? Yeah, that's certainly something that's affecting many people later in life as well. What about the role of early intervention to eliminate bad bites, and crooked teeth. Well, it's kind of the same thing. You know, when you think about it, the structure that enables you to swallow and breathe has to do with the bone structure. So that if you have a really narrow nose or a deviated septum, that's going to interfere with you being able to breathe normally. So another consequence of not having a wide enough bone area is there's not enough room for the teeth. So then the teeth end up getting crowded. So the reason that's, that's important is when, as kids grow, there's an opportunity to change the way they're growing if you see a problem. So if we see a child who's two years old, and you look in their mouth, and there's crowding of the baby teeth, that probably means they're going to have problems down the road. So right now, there are orthodontists who are starting to do 
procedures way earlier than we ever did before because that growth of the brain and the bones of the skull happens really quickly, very early, and you can make more of an impact the earlier that you intervene. So it's just a really interesting concept, I think, because it's always better to prevent than cure. So I personally know people who are in, one person comes to mind in particular, who's in his 60s, and he's had sleep apnea and a CPAP machine, and he just can't stand that anymore. So he's looking for any other solution. And so he's gone through a whole lot of different things. So there's things you can do like taking out tonsils and soft tissue procedures, but that doesn't seem to make as much difference as actually changing the structure of the bone so there's more room in the airway, so there's more opportunity to be able to breathe. And in adult, that means a surgical procedure to widen the palate. In kids, the bone is still malleable, so doing that in a child is way, way easier than doing it in an adult. So it's made a lot of people think about what kind of things can we do early to prevent that long-term problem. And these particular things that you just talked about, the sleep apnea and the bad bites and crooked teeth, I think that they speak in general to the importance of early intervention, another reason why it's a good idea to get the kid into the dental chair at a young age. Right, especially because this field is just growing in leaps and bounds, and I think it's at the stage where there are people who are um, ear, nose, and throat physicians and pediatricians and physical therapists and respiratory therapists and occupational therapists and dentists who are all interested. And once we all put our heads together, we're probably going to be able to come up with some good solutions. So right now, I'm at the stage where I'm looking at children and saying, hmm, this isn't normal. They should be able to breathe better. And so when you see a child who is a mouth breather, as they grow, they develop. And I have a a niece who comes to mind who, you know, she ended up with a longer face. She was always breathing through her mouth, could not breathe through her nose. When she went through braces, she ended up with a super gummy smile because the roof of her mouth is very narrow. So all of those things are so much harder to correct than the original problem of not being able to breathe through the nose. So that's what we're looking at, trying to come up with those solutions way earlier so we can prevent people from having the kind of problems they're having as they continue in life. And Bernice, a little step back into prehistoric times here, that I have a fair amount of metal in my mouth. If you take today's youth and project them out to their 60s and 70s and 80s, is it likely that they will have less metal in their mouth than most of the senior age people have now? Because things are different now. Well, you know, when you say metal, I have a lot of patients who don't have metal in their mouth because I think you're talking about the amalgam fillings, and I personally haven't really done an amalgam filling for about 25 years. So... People don't have metal in their mouths, but maybe you're talking more about having dental treatment. I don't know. It's silvery looking. I don't really analyze it too much. Well, you know, so there are white color fillings now, but that's, I don't think that's your point. I think your point is how much healthier will people's mouths be? And that has a whole lot to do with, you know, when when we think about this pandemic, the way we get control is to change people's behaviors. And so the more people's behaviors change, the better chance we have of having them be healthier. I still have patients come in who haven't been to the dentist in 10 or 20 years. So they have a lot of damage in their mouths. So unfortunately, yes, they'll end up with a lot of dentistry. Other people who come in regularly, treat a problem, as soon as it happens. And, you know, and I know there are a lot of reasons why 
people don't come in. And, and I value those reasons and I understand them. But until people's behavior changes, then there's always going to be the t- potential. You know, when I was in dental school and fluoride was being used more, you know, there was that discussion sometimes of, will we have anything to do? Well, it really hasn't changed as much as I would like it to. You know, there's still dietary influences, people smoke, you know, weed is an issue, electronics, anything that creates that smoke and dryness in your mouth creates decay. I now have a pretty large older population who uses a lot of medications that dry their mouths and they're ending up having a lot of decay and then we can't save the teeth, so then we're looking at implants. So there's still a lot of work to be done, but it's exciting to think about doing some things for kids that will help keep them way healthier than our generation is in their in their lifetime. Well, let's wrap things up with an update on what's going on with the Seroptimist of Willimantic. So each year we do give out an award for a woman in the community who's making an impact on other other women, and that time is coming now. So if you out there in the general public know of a woman who really seems to be making a difference in the lives of other other women, then please let us know because we would like to award that person. And most of the time they're involved with a charitable organization and we have a financial award for their uh, charitable organization and we'd like to recognize them. The other thing is we will not be doing our annual ball that we do in March this year. So a lot of you who have attended the ball in the past will be getting letters and will be asking for donations so we can continue our work. And what we're going to try and do is around September, perhaps, do an outdoor event, maybe at Jolson Square. So we're working on that right now. And we still are continuing to give out the grants that we normally do with the help of the generosity of all of the people in our community. I hope we help people get healthier children's mouth during February, Children's Dental Health Month, with Dr. Bernice Shafarik from Shafarik Dental on Route 66 East in Columbia, 228-8492. Thank you, Bernice. You're welcome.